Good morning, friends. Um, let me start with a question today. And give it serious consideration before you present your answer. The question is this. If we had to forego the celebration of Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, or Pentecost, which one would seem the least crucial? Now take your time and think about that. Now, many of us, myself included, would have a tough time picturing a year without no Christmas or no uh, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and no Easter. I mean, many Christians, because of the congregational and cultural emphasis of the first three, would probably say, well, if I must choose, I guess I could do without Pentecost. And to that I would say, absolutely not. The bottom line of what I'm trying to say from the Bible today is that without Pentecost, the other three would not be celebrated at all. There could not have been a Good Friday without the advent of Christ's coming, which we celebrate at Christmas. A Good Friday would have been a meaningless martyrdom without the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate at Easter. <clears throat> but it is Pentecost that it enables the gift of faith by which you and I can know that the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are for us. Jesus was not finished when he rose from the dead and ascended to be glorified. He came back to give the greatest gift of all, the gift of his own spirit to live in us. So it's with the excitement of this reality that today we focus on Pentecost with our theme from Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to call this Receiving God's Power. Today we're going to take a look at five aspects of receiving God's power. And first of all, let's look at the promise of Pentecost in receiving the power of God. Now, the promise is pretty straightforward. Jesus gave it in his last words to his disciples when he said in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power, that Greek word is dynamis, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, that's the obvious promise. But, you know, there were earlier promises of the Spirit of God coming in Pentecostal power. Hundreds of years before, the prophet Joel quoted God as saying, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterwards, I will pour out, guess what, my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now you can read that in Joel chapter 2, it's verses 27 to 32. Now in case you question such reaching back into the Old Testament to find such a future promise, I will refer you to no lesser authority than uh, Peter, who in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 21, quotes this prophecy of Joel verbatim. So friends, you and I, who have repented of sin, put our trust in Jesus alone for salvation, are promised God's Pentecostal power. Now this is not a divine energy that's restricted to some movements and denominations that go by the label charismatic or Pentecostal. That Galsadid is if we relegate to others the divine energy that God wills for all of us. Well, second, let's look at the posture of Pentecost and receiving God's power. The biblical record tells us that this is the posture of a people who are ready to receive God's power. Acts 1.14 tells us they 
all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Acts 2.1 declares, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And you know something, friends, there's no substitute for Christian community. You know, every few months I read the results of polls that declare that a, a fairly high percentage of Americans are professing believers in Jesus. Add to that the number of people who claim to have a, I guess you call it a deep spirituality, and you find that an overwhelming percentage of our fellow citizens see themselves as people of the God, people of God. But then I ask myself, why then is there not a greater impact on our society and world? Now, I'm convinced that there is a neglecting of this biblical profile of what is the posture of people who are open to receive the fullness of the power of God's Spirit and to continue to receive the fullness of that power. And, you know, this posture has at least four aspects. One aspect is that of being together in one place. I mean, you just plain simple can't go it alone in the Christian life. I mean, you need brothers and sisters. So, so many people who claim spirituality are pursuing it on a, a lone ranger basis. A second aspect is the necessity of being in a spirit of prayer. Now, certainly we need times alone in prayer, but we need times together in prayer. We need to open our hearts to God, allowing God to capture our attention. I mean, some of us are so busy running around doing things that we have not taken the time to listen or be open or to receive the divine power and energy that God wants to give us through his spirit. A third aspect is to be taking seriously what the scriptures have to say. Now, I'm fascinated at the fact that during these days between the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost, this group of about 120 close followers of Jesus heard the scriptures taught. I mean, it was Peter who expounded the Old Testament teachings to them. It was a posture of receptivity to God's teachings. And fourth is that they were waiting expectantly for God to act. Now, is there that dimension of waiting in your life? See, we live in a culture of instant gratification. If something goes wrong in our life, we automatically tend to blame God. We forget that God can use those things that are so puzzling to us to actually get our attention. Is yours a posture of being together on a regular basis with other believers? Is it a posture of prayer? Is yours a posture of having the Bible open before you in personal daily meditation and in corporate teaching and preaching environments? Is yours a posture of waiting on God, trusting him to, in his time, fulfill his promises in a way that you do not get overly self-impressed with the victories in your life and overly discouraged at what appears to be the losses and tragedies that come your way? Now, let me assure you that if you are not in this kind of posture, you're going to find other postures that will quench the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. For example, not long ago, I read a, an article uh, describing a, I guess it's called, feng, feng, I always call it feng shui, you know, feng shui practitioner who for $100 an hour would walk through your house and tell you what to add and take away to bring the energy into balance. And so this priest would come to your home or office and would arrange items, move the doors, put up mirrors, and all sorts of other manipulations to achieve what he called good chi. That's it's an endeavor to attract good spirits and repel evil spirits. Well, friends, the posture of receiving God's power is not through such pagan exercises as feng shui, astrology, or palm reading or fortune telling. It's by gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ in the spirit of prayer. With a Bible that's open and a heart that's waiting and receptive for God's guidance. 
Well, third, let's look at the picture of Pentecost of the people receiving God's power. Now, there were three great Jewish festivals to which every male Jew who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was legally bound to come. That was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The name Pentecost means the 50th, and another name for Pentecost was the Feast of Weeks. It was so called because it fell on the 50th day after a week of weeks, seven weeks, each having seven days after Passover. Passover fell in the middle of April, therefore Pentecost fell at the beginning of June. By that time, traveling conditions were at their best. The rainy seasons were over, and some Bible scholars say that there may very well have been more people in Jerusalem at Pentecost than there were during Passover. Now, this uh, feast had two main significances. One, it had a historical significance in that it commemorated the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And two, it had an agricultural significance in that at Passover, the first omer, that's a measurement of barley of the crop, was offered to God. And at Pentecost, two loaves were offered in gratitude for the completed and ingathered harvest. No work was to be done on that day. It was a festive holiday, and the streets were filled with people. Now, Luke paints the picture for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 13. I'm only going to read a couple of verses here. It says, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, Luke uh, goes on to describe how they were staying in Jerusalem, uh, God-fearing Jews from every nation who heard the sound, and came and gathered in, well, I guess, bewilderment, each hearing disciples speak in their own languages. Now, some people, obviously Lutherans, deeply perplexed, wanted to know, what does this mean? Others made fun of the disciples, saying they've had too much wine. Now, the Hebrew word for the spirit and wind is ruach. The wind had been an emblem of the spirit for the Hebrews throughout the generations. The wind of God was present at the creation. You may remember back in Genesis where it talks about the spirit of God you know, hovered over the face of the deep. See, it was this wind of which Ezekiel spoke of in the valley of the dry bones in which a defeated people would be brought back to life. You ought to go back and read that interesting story in Ezekiel 37. I mean, Jesus used the image of the wind for the Spirit when he was describing to Nicodemus being born again by the Spirit. That's in John chapter 3. In the upper room, the wind was blowing with an irresistible force, and perhaps Nicodemus was even among those and saw this undeniable evidence of the wind. There's new thought, new energy, new vitality, new creativity, new emotion came to life by this infilling of the Holy Spirit. God was bringing life to his people individually and corporately. He was actually birthing his church. And not only was the wind part of the picture, also tongues of fire were part of the picture. The text says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. See, the fire of the Holy Spirit purges and burns away the chaff. All that debilitates and prevents you from from you and me from becoming what God created you and me to become. And not only is the chaff burned away, the Holy Spirit refines us, just like a melting process that burns off the dross and brings out the, the, the pure metal. 
the Bible often talks about a refiner's fire that purges us and enables us to live with the warmth of God's Spirit emanating from our lives. The fire of the Holy Spirit helps us to love others, to be a people who are more giving, more consistent in our Christian lives, and more forgiving of others. And there's a third picture here as well. It's that of speaking in tongues. Now, some would distinguish between tongues being that kind of ecstatic utterance that's uh, not really an intelligible language, except if it's interpreted by someone who has the gift of understanding that otherwise unintelligible tongue. But a second understanding of tongues is literally the capacity <clears throat> to communicate with people in ways that go beyond human understanding. I mean, gathered in Jerusalem were men and women from many different nations speaking many different languages. And here were these Galileans, not very sophisticated people, who were conveying the gospel of Jesus Christ in their languages, their own languages that were understandable to them. Now, how can I get across this picture of Pentecost? How does the wind, the fire, and the tongues apply to us today? Well, the best way I can summarize it is in trying to paint a picture of those times in life when a person outdoes himself or herself. But I'm going to give you an example of a, a football player. In the last two minutes of the game with the score, uh, he's trailing by a few points. He runs faster than his legs have ever carried him before, farther than he'd ever dreamed of running, and scores the winning touchdown as time runs out. Now, when he comes out of the game, the coach says, I didn't know you had it in you. Now, if he's honest, his reply is going to be, I didn't. I felt like I was picked up and carried by something outside of myself. That's the picture of what happens to us when we're open to the fullness, the power of the Spirit, allowing his wind to propel, his fire to purify, and his endowment of communication abilities to help us to convey the objectivity of his truth and our experience of our relationship with him to other people. The danger of organized Christianity today is that it can become powerless. I mean, there's nothing more boring than empty theological words. I don't know about you, but there's nothing more enervating, life-sapping than dry institutional religion that simply becomes a head trip and a business. You see, friends, Jesus did not come to found a new religion called Christianity. In John 10.10, 10, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, let's look at the preaching of Pentecost of a people receiving God's power. <clears throat> now, we hear a lot of talk today in political circles about staying on message. It's important that we as followers of Jesus have a Pentecostal message that enables us to stay on message as well. Uh, to that point, there are four types of preaching, all of which are uh, as especially important. Each of these should be part of the normal affair of biblical preaching. One is what we call kerygma, and this literally means the, the herald's announcement. It's, it's the clear, plain statement of the facts of the Christian message which, about which there can be no argument, no denial. That ought to be in every sermon. Second is what is called didache, and this literally means teaching. It explains the meaning and the significance of the facts that have been proclaimed. And third, there is what's called paraklesis, which means exhortation. This is that call to people of the duties or the obligations which are to be the outcroppings of lives that have been touched by this kerygma and didache. And fourth, there is what is called homilia, which means the treatment of any subject or department of life in the light of the Christian message. That kind of answers the question, so what does it mean to us? 
Now, I'm going to tell you that every church, if it is faithful to Jesus in the scriptures, has in it, in its life, all four kinds of preaching and teaching. In fact, I personally believe that every sermon, even though it may be concentrating in one area in particular, should have a little bit of each of the other. For example, as we talked through Philippians the last time uh, we were in prison, um, we uh, we were teaching that would be considered didache. At the same time as we are learning about the early church, there will be an ongoing recurrent theme of the proclamation of the gospel, calling the, the men to repentance. And we see that as an ethical exhortation to apply this in one's daily life, and we'll see that there's no area of life that's not impacted by the gospel. And so in teaching, ours is kind of, we're teaching a holistic faith and the lordship of Jesus involves every area of our life. Now, if you read Peter's sermon, Acts two fourteen to 41, Peter preached on that day, his main thrust was kerygma. It would be as if I stood up and shared, you know, the four spiritual laws. Uh, Peter gets up and addresses the crowd, declaring that these men and women are not drunk. I mean, after all, it's only nine in the morning. I mean, what's happening before your eyes, he said, is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel and others predicted. And then he zeroes in on the work of Jesus. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Well, then Peter quotes from David, who in the Old Testament prophesied the resurrection of Jesus. The promised Messiah had come. The atoning work had been accomplished. And Peter says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, this preaching is charismatic. Now, this preaching is Christ-centered. This preaching is biblically based, according to the authoritative scriptures. And this is especially important that preaching be biblically based. Now, this kind of preaching also elicits a, a response. I mean, some of the people who heard Peter on Pentecost were, according to Luke, cut to the heart. And, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what must we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. See, Peter continued to preach, warning them of the corruptness of this generation. And what was, he, what was the result of this preaching? Well, Luke writes, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, that's that charismatic preaching that it had within it, the strands of teaching and exhortation and application to all life. Now, after that little lesson on uh, preaching and teaching, let's get back to our fifth point here. Let's look at the practice of Pentecost of a people who have received God's power. Luke shows us four specific practices of a, of a living Holy Spirit-filled church. He records his history, the practice, in these words of Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as he had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, let me tell you about the four practices very quickly. One, it was a learning church. There were 3,120 people devoting themselves to the apostle teaching, and they took the Didache seriously. This was not some mystical experience that caused them to neglect theology. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is not anti-intellectual. And today we have the prophetic teachings in the Old Testament, which the early church had, and we have the apostles' teaching as recorded and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. All I'm saying, friends, is a spirit-filled church is a biblical church committed to the Word of God. And second, it was a caring church. I mean, they were involved in the practice of fellowship. They came together in intimate groupings. They saw everything they had was God's given to them to use. And so they shared with each other uh, as common all that they had. Some sold their possessions and goods. Not all did this because it tells us later that they met in each other's homes. Now, some of you remember the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, which was the sin of hypocrisy and lying that came out of covetousness. Now, I also want you to know the church is not some sort of a Marxist socialist organization. I mean, you and I have to decide how we deal with what God has given to us in a way that serves the greater good of the kingdom of God. But we are called to be concerned about the poor, both within the church and outside. We are called to have a sense of global concern, aware that one-fifth to one-sixth of the world lives below the poverty level. I mean, third, it was a worshiping church. I mean, these early believers met together regularly to break bread and pray together. Their worship was formal in the temple, and their worship was informal, meaning in individual homes. And their worship was both joyful and dignified, but it was celebrative and reverent. And fourth, it was an evangelizing church. The teaching that nourished the believers was balanced by a continuing emphasis on the charisma that others called others to repentance and faith. Acts 2.47, and the Lord added daily to their number who were being saved. You see, friends, evangelism is central to our work. You and I are called to share our faith individually and corporately. So let me conclude with the same question with which I open this message. If we had to forego the celebration of Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, or Pentecost, which one would seem least crucial? Well, as essential as is Christmas... As is Good Friday, as is Easter, these three would not be celebrated at all if it were not for Pentecost. Just as in the Incarnation God came in human form and in the crucifixion God God died for the sins of the world and in the resurrection God triumphed over sin and death, even so in Pentecost God empowers you and me and his church universal to live to his glory and to do his work until he comes again. There's a song we often sing on Pentecost. It goes this way. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Empowering me and us to be and do all you dream of us being and doing. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.